Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Crepia, and he is Aaron Fentress for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Uh, as you... Might imagine uh, quite a bit of news to go over here in the last week as the Ducks complete a coaching search uh, that really came together obviously quite quickly and a in the grand scheme of things, a search that from start to finish lasted about five days, uh, which is quite honestly, if it happened, if we're talking about a search that was happening in late November, early December, uh, uh, slightly earlier than this search was, We'd probably be commenting about about how quickly it managed to get done. Uh, That's like speed dating to find a wife. It was a very fa- <laughs> it, it was a fast process. We talked last week about it when it first started about well you know timetables and uh, how fast could it get done and you know, we weren't necessarily predicting exactly what day and what hour, but you know there was obviously yes an appreciation by uh, all parties that expediting the process uh, and getting the right hire as fast as possible was going to be really important, particularly ahead of signing day. Uh, and also with coaches who are obviously sitting in their current positions and Dan Landing being one of them, uh, who still have jobs to complete at their current situations uh, in many cases. So we'll obviously go over the hire of Dan Landing and some of the process uh, and some of his background and everything else. So uh, first, just in a, uh, Big picture, uh, Aaron, your, your thoughts on initial impressions of the hire uh, of Dan and his uh, press conference yesterday uh, between both the news of it first getting out really Friday afternoon uh, and uh, the, the reports then and then obviously the completion of things on Saturday and, and like I said, what we heard from Dan Lanning yesterday. That was one of the wildest weeks <laughs> that I've ever observed in my life. Like that was just high drama the entire time from the rumors about Mario Mario through the hiring and then of course the letter and then the Wilcox chip angle and all that stuff it was just it was great theater I have to put that out there and I've been trying to rack my brain because I feel like it might have been the most interesting coaching transition in Oregon history like I don't even think that's necessarily hyperbole like that was absolutely fascinating what went down uh that all said you know look if you strike out on finding a proven quote unquote, big name head coach uh, that you can steal from someone like you just had your coach stolen from you. The next best way to go probably is the hotshot coordinator from a major power. And Georgia clearly is one of the top teams in the country, one of the top programs in the country. They had the number one defense in the country by a country mile in many statistical categories. And so you went out and you just took their defensive coordinator He's got a lot of promise, Lanning does. Um, there's a lot of mystery there, which is always intriguing from where I sit, where I sit in terms of just, you know, being a, an objective observer for the most part. 
so I, I like it. You know, hey, roll the roll the dice on this young man, see what happens. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a tremendous upside there. I have no issue with the hire whatsoever, and I thought they did a a good job of finding someone after clearly being rejected by many others. Rejected by many others. Oh, so we're not, now we're saying that it was it was a, a totally undesirable situation. That uh, it wasn't just a. Uh, well, I mean, if it, if it was rejected by many others, apparently. I mean, you know, so clearly must. He, some, Lanning wasn't their first felt, choice. Was Lanning their first choice? I didn't say that either, but you know, we've we've got a report of one rejection. Uh, now it's many. Oh, okay. Well, you know. All right, but you know, be that as it may. Um, <laughs> okay, they they know. offered two people. All right, but. But be that as it may, anyway. uh, you know, I, there's only so many sitting head coaches that were there. We talked about it last week. You said there's, hey, if you start saying if you're going to try to uh, poach somebody, he said his phone the rang off the realm. hook. Who? Well, Rob again, who, who isn't going to say that? Who isn't going to say that? Well, so now Rob's lying. I'm saying, but but what AD is going to come out when they have an opening and say, you know, why say anything? I've been sitting here, I've been sitting here for three or four hours anything? and my phone has been dead. I, you know, I had to check to see if I, I had airplane mode on. <laughs> No one's been calling me. I, and my reception span, I might have to change to a different carrier. I just don't anything. know if it's been ringing. Um, gosh. But that's, but what do you want him to say? I don't want, he didn't have to say anything. He's lying. You're saying he's lying. I'm saying he doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to say there's no interest at all. He doesn't have to say my phone's ringing off the hook. He can just say, we expect to have a lot of good, uh, interesting candidates. But he said my phone's ringing off the hook. Who was right. calling him? Linfield's coach? Like, you know, during college coaches, I, I would imagine there was some qualified coaches who maybe were interested. I'm sure they kicked the tires on a lot of people just like they did in 2016. So all I'm saying is there were people out there that they undoubtedly reached out to and had conversations with mm-hmm. and things never fell into place and they hired Lanning. That's not a diss on Lanning. I know fans want to act like this was the first choice and, oh, my God, we stole this guy that everyone else in the country wanted. But that's not necessarily the truth. They got a good hire. It's no different than Taggart. Taggart wasn't nearly their first choice, but they felt really good about Taggart, and a lot of people did. So I'm not knocking him. I'm just saying there's no way he was our first choice. And you know, I, I think it also matters that the the firm they hired, uh, Parker, whatever it's called, that the guy who runs that is a Georgia fan who went to Georgia. I'm sure there's a nice little connection there too. So but there's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm just saying this wasn't necessarily their first choice. So when they were looking for – when you're trying to poach a uh, sitting head coach and like we went through last week that if you poached. look at top 10 – They if you just look got at, poached. Right. Okay. So they can't poach? I didn't say that. So – What I said was when I we talked about this about last week, I'm going to try it a third time. I'm going to try it a third time. Perhaps, Please you know, do. but the third time – I know seven times usually is usually when people really kind of clicks. So I'm going to try number three. When Please we talked do. about it last week and based on the criterion that Rob Mullins laid out, about you know having success, run, being involved in running a top ten program, uh-huh. uh, winning those sorts of things, and as we discussed last week, that when you cross off certain people that fit that criteria, who absolutely are not leaving their situations, or in some cases with uh, Brian Kelly and Lincoln Riley having just left similar situations for other top ten kind of situations potentially, uh, when you start crossing off those names of. Saban and Kirby and Dabo and Ryan Day and Lincoln and Brian <laughs> Kelly and what have you because that, that they're not leaving. No chance. Yeah, okay, right, because there's no way those kinds of coaches are leaving. For they're Oregon. unpoachable. They're not leaving they're, for Oregon, period. Oh, so Ryan Day is going to leave for another job in college football. 
I'm are you are you insinuating that those names were on Oregon's list? No. What are you? I'm insinuating that. Okay. Do we have to like start over from square one here? Again, I'm going to try a fourth time now. Okay. If you are trying to poach a sitting head coach who has proven success, which mm-hmm. is what we discussed a week ago. I know it was only seven days ago. I know a lot has happened. Perhaps you forgot the conversation. But if you are trying to poach a sitting head coach with success as a head coach, which uh-huh. is what your, your premise is, go and do right. that. You just got poached. Go and get that guy. Right. My point is, is that there isn't very many of those guys to be had. That's what I'm getting at. There weren't a lot of those guys to be had. You just run okay. through a long list of those names. You want to talk about top 10 while well, I just ran off like six, seven, eight names who you're not getting. Not, not at Oregon, top, not at damn near anywhere, anywhere quite honestly. 10. I never say anything about top 10 or the top seven coaches in the country. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what Rob said of running top 10 programs. Well, if we're going by top 10 there are only so many names, and then you start crossing off pretty quickly, and you start getting down to, all right, who are you poaching? Uh, well, with sustained success over the course of three, four, five years, there's not a lot of them to be had. So then you're looking into the top assistants. And we mentioned last week, we talked about that Lanny was one of those guys. We talked about the guys who were up for the Broyles and the Broyles Award last night, uh, last week, and that Josh Gaddis at Michigan was one, and Lanning was another, and Jeff Grimes at Baylor was another. We talked about Lanning specifically. So I don't find it surprising. Uh, again, if anything, my only regret last week was that I didn't modify my potential candidates list uh, to just throw them on there before we got to Friday. Uh, because we talked about him here. I text somebody Monday night about him. I talked about him on the Twitter spaces with people. I talked about him on radio with people, on radio on my own show and in the South. Uh, it was not exactly a like, wow, this is coming out of left field. Again, the, the, Play calling coordinator for the number one defense on each of the last three years. Yeah, shocker that he might be a candidate, considering he also interviewed in Oklahoma. Yeah, uh, of course. Yes, I, I think Dan Lanning was, he won, he was up for other jobs. Okay, Oklahoma ended up going with Brent Venables, which is hardly, <laughs> hardly a knock uh, on anybody. Again, someone with ties to the program and is also a, a tremendous defensive mind in his own regard. So they had an opening. They got a search process start to completion and inside of a week, really inside of like five days. And they went and got one of the top coordinators in the sport. The only thing that is of any quote unquote risk is if there's not any risk in any hire when you're, unless you're going out and hiring a Nick Saban or Kirby Smart or what have you, people who've won national championships. Outside of that, there's always a risk. You can come up with any risk. You can come up with anything. And say there's a risk. That's everything. The only risk that can really be outlined is, well, he hasn't been a sitting head coach before at the FBS level. And that's that's just fact. Yes. But them's the breaks. I mean, was Georgia saying that when they hired Kirby Smart? He was the top defensive coordinator, granted, for a longer period of time, no doubt. He actually either waited out, turned down, or didn't interview well early in his career, other things. So he served a long, long time there. But... When you hire a coordinator or position coach, for that matter, who hasn't been a head coach before, you can outline it and say, well, that's a risk. Yeah, it is. Yes, I, no doubt. But is this a coordinator who didn't have success or hasn't been a two-time Royals finalist, which we talked about last week, where being a Royals finalist once usually puts you on a fast track to being a head coach twice? And I'd said it was like a foregone conclusion, like write your own you know, destination. And he interviewed for two different jobs last week alone. So, yes, 
And I mean, frankly, again, another guy who falls in that category. I'm surprised Jeff Grimes hasn't gotten a head coaching job this cycle. And if there's further movement in the next month or so, maybe he does. Uh, either that or he just loves the situation he's got at Baylor that, that much. But those guys are on a, on a hot, hot and fast track to landing head coaching jobs. You know, Gaddis was being considered, you know, his name quickly got involved in the Virginia search late. Um, Knowles from Oklahoma State lands a job at Ohio State where they're paying him $1.9 million to stay as a defensive coordinator, but go from one to the other. That's what happens with Broyles finalists. So getting a two-time Broyles finalist who has worked for both Nick Saban and Kirby Smart, and yes, Mike Norvell on the other side, uh, on the other side of the ball, but previously when he was at Memphis, there's not a lot of 35-year-old head coaches or coaches, period, in college football who can claim that they worked for both of those men and have accomplished what he has in those roles and called plays on his side of the ball. There are very few who fit that criterion. There are. And look, Marcus Freeman got the job at Notre Dame, and that happened quickly internally. And there can certainly be the portrayal that that's a degree of risk, and I'm not saying that it isn't. But it went over the locker room real quick. So he inherits Notre Dame, who is presently in the top five, and nobody's going, oh, Marcus Freeman doesn't like deserve this, or this is some wild, crazy risk. Yes, it was an internal promotion, but he's also 35 years old, and he also hasn't been a head coach. So, look, these are two of the up-and-coming, young defensive minds in the game running top-10 caliber programs. I think it's going to be interesting to compare, frankly, the two of them in the near future. And then Venables, who's, yes, not 35, but in that regard, Oklahoma. I think there's it's, it's interesting that three of the best defensive minds in the sport now are head coaches, and frankly, Dave Aranda's got a two-year head start on all of them. Uh, it's it's intriguing that some of the top programs in the country have defensive head coaches right now, and three happen in the same cycle. You done? Well, I, I, I think now that we've done it a fourth <laughs> time, perhaps it resonated. Yeah, but I, to I, I, I need yeah, I, I really didn't understand where you were going. Thanks for clarifying the obvious. The point is, I don't have a problem with the hire. I think it's a good hire. I don't believe for a second that he was necessarily at the top of their list. I think they fell into this and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That happens in coaching searches. I don't believe for a second that he, uh, he is guaranteed necessarily to have success. I think he has a good chance to have success. Of course, what success means with Oregon is kind of differs depending on which pocket of the fan base you talk to, but no, I think it's, I think it's a nice hire. I just, you know, like I said before, when when they go out and do these coaching searches, they typically have a specific type of person in mind. But if you're not going to get that type of person, then getting an up-and-coming guy who could eventually become one of those types of people is a good way to go. Therefore, I absolutely like the hire. Yeah. Now to uh, some of the background and certainly what he brings to the table again we kind of went over a little bit there briefly but obviously the uh, play calling experience uh, and running at this point what is still uh, statistically the top defense in the country this season has been over the course of the past three seasons uh, in any number of categories uh, between just total yards points you name it George has been at an elite level now having said that yes they also happen to have elite players uh, that 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 helps and uh, great you know good good and great coaches usually become better uh, and look a lot better when they have great players and they'd have them 
that that's that's for sure. Uh, you know, this is <laughs> he's he's been involved with probably one of the top the most talented defenses uh, beyond just the top performing defenses is one of the most talented defenses each of the last couple of seasons, and they have maximized that talent. I would say uh, this past SEC championship game, notwithstanding, they have been at an elite level. Uh, so it starts there in terms of what he's done from that standpoint. But also, again, the, the further background of having worked for uh, Smart for even the year before he was a coordinator, so the past four seasons, uh, yes, having spent the year as a GA at Alabama, ironically enough, with Mario Cristobal on that staff uh, in the 2015 season. Uh, in particular, also, again, Norvell, who's an offensive guy. Uh, but I think that connection may come in where, uh, obviously, there's these reports that he's uh, pursuing Kenny Dillingham potentially as the offensive coordinator. So um, in terms of what he brings to the table, Aaron, um, do you think he uh, increased, decrease? Uh, wh- where do you think the, the uh, in your perspective, does that relatively improve or maintain uh, Oregon's chances in terms of being a, a national title contender compared to if, if Mario had stayed, if the Miami thing hadn't happened, if this is just everything was status quo as it was 10, 12 days ago. Do you think that Oregon is in a better position now, relatively same position now, significantly worse position now? What's your <laughs> position? Uh, you know, look, I believe Mario was absolutely replaceable. Uh, like Mario, I think he's a good, he was doing a good job, but in no way did I feel like he was just... I'm looking at this list of top 25 coaches, and it, it had him 16th, which... It's, it's interesting to me, but, you know, I, I think he was very p- replaceable. Um, I would say right now <clears throat> I would put it on par because I didn't really believe Mario was going to win a national title anytime soon, if ever. And so I'd put Lanning on par with that. Like, it's possible. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I wasn't going to say it was never going to happen with Mario. So I would say that right now I think it's on par. I think Lanning could do every bit as well as Mario's done or was going to do moving forward, uh, you know, Obviously, Mario had a, a better track record. Well, not a better track record, but had more experience because he had been a head coach. And granted, his his record at FIU wasn't good, but he took over a place that literally did not have a, a weight room when he got there. So I've never held his, really held his record there against him because he actually built it back up uh, from what it was. Sort of similar similar situations to Taggart and his his early records that he took over dumpster fires and made him better. Mario did the same thing at FIU. And he, did, he didn't take over a dumpster fire at Oregon, but clearly he had things going in the right direction. I believe Lanning will continue on the same path, so to speak. Um, so, But I don't necessarily foresee him winning a national title at Oregon either. He has a chance, but small one. So I'm going to say on par. And it's it's hard to... Hard. It's, it's really impossible to project things like uh, uh, national championship relevance and those sorts of things because... The margin for error in college football is unbelievably finite. When you're talking about trying to predict it for uh, a program that hasn't done it before, no matter what the recruiting prowess and success that's been had um, under Cristobal and his staff, trying to project that onto uh, a new coach and, and a coaching staff who still has to all yet to be hired is impossible. Again, when you know that certain powers are just going to be there, that the Alabamas and Georgias of the world are just going to be there regardless. Uh, and then who knows exactly whether Clemson has a bounce back or not, quite frankly, because they've lost 
both of their coordinators. And it's the first time that they really have to deal with that level of instability. Uh, and what Ohio State does, because, you know, boy, the, the, the down year that is where they reach the Rose Bowl. <laughs> boy, what a tough year. Uh, but what, what do they do when they actually have, you know, a, a competent situation on the defensive side? Uh, and what kind of improvement is there? Does Michigan does Michigan sustain after having this level of success? Frankly, what does Michigan do against Georgia in the Orange Bowl and the uh, CFP semifinals? So there's going to be those questions. Obviously, I think we all uh, can surmise in terms of heading into this current playoff situation and beginning to project for next season that tremendous a story as Cincinnati has been that with the likelihood that certain players are going to be leaving, that Cincinnati may take a little bit of a step back next season, that there may not be a undefeated top four team uh, a year from now. And that's not necessarily going to be a knock on Luke Fickle or, uh, you know, that he suddenly became worse a coach. That's a program that's not going to be able to sustain at a national level for three years running at the group of five level. Sooner or later, you have to, you know, there has to be players, and when those players leave, being able to replace them at a place like Cincinnati is just a wee bit more difficult. So, But projecting for a place like Oregon, when you know that certain programs are just absolutely going to be there, like I say, it's, it's, it's kind of a fool's errand. At minimum, I think they're probably in a probably a holding pattern, like, like, like you say, kind of probably more or less the same sort of situation. Uh, without knowing, you know, it's kind of the, un- but it's the uncertainty of it. It's, it's not just the uncertainty of, of who we, who all else he hires and what the staff looks like and those things. It just, there's a lot to be determined. Who all ends up going to the draft? Who, um, what, what happens in the portal? You know, they've had one player leave in DJ James. It looked like Seven McGee was going to be joining him last night and within 90 minutes. He's no longer going in. So there's just, it's such a fluid situation, especially in terms of personnel and staff. I, I, I can't begin to, project that for for next year you know in terms of three four five years out i can we can we get to <laughs> can we get to game one before you know we're projecting what the 2024 you know possibilities are kind of thing like like i say i i think if this was if this was a hire who did not come from at least the top assistant category that scale of risk i think you go wow this is whoa uh, that's that's real risk. That's a greater uncertainty. I think that would be easy to say, man, maybe they took even a little bit of a step back. I, I don't think you can say that here, certainly not definitively. I think it probably is a little bit of a holding position, but there was so there was a lot of work done by the previous staff and credit to them to keep the recru- to have the recruiting classes be as successful as they were. I don't think you just take it for granted that the next guy is able to achieve that and sustain that. I'm not saying that Landing won't or can't. I'm saying that but there was a lot of work done to make that happen. So who he hires on his staff will be important, not just in general, but important to being able to leverage and continue to recruit at that level. It's not, it's not something that Oregon did on a perennial basis before it wasn't. And of, of course we all know what, what was said by some of the prior staffs uh, in that regard, you know, even particularly before Taggart arrived uh, re- regarding, you know, recruiting at the national level. So it's, as I say, I think it's probably, I agree with you in that it probably is relatively a similar position that we'll have to see over the next several, several months as to what that looks like by way of are, are their chances actually improving? Because if, if they hire great recruiting staff and great staff in general, not just rec- of recruiters, but that that's a critically important factor. If that's part of it, 
and they get a jump on the 2023 cycle and that class starts to you know set a foundation we're talking in the spring summer about gosh they're look look at how quickly they've assembled something that's you know looks great on paper then i think you could even argue that perhaps the chance is improved but that's like i say that's for like 6 months from now that's that's down the road we got to see what the staff looks like we got to see what the personnel changes that happen over the next month or so what that looks like uh more than anything in that so, regard question though. okay um yeah. you talked earlier about obviously the talent level he's had at georgia i look back mm. i always look at rivals everyone looks at 24/7 but if, i'm always i've done rivals forever so i'm habit but their class rankings leading up to him becoming dc and since went 6931115 which is crazy so my question though is like how how much of a, a recruiting gem is this guy like how how we all knew Mario was a big time recruiter and I think had been ranked number one in the nation or something like that in 2015. Like where does Lanning fall in that category as terms of his recruiting prowess? How good of a recruiter is this guy really? Well, he's ranked number eight this cycle. Uh, and involved eight? with They're going from one to eight. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. He personally, <laughs> no, him I specifically. I know. I'm, so, I'm joking. Going from uh, Mario being so one to him. He's, right. he's uh uh, he's up there at that at that position in this cycle and uh, involved in seven of Georgia's 24 commitments. And I think he was the primary recruiter. I want to say it was for either three or four of them uh, and was involved in recruiting uh, Nolan Smith a couple of years ago. And he was the number one overall recruit in the country in the 2019 cycle. So mm-hmm. he's been involved in, and he's been a terrific player for Georgia this season. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's been involved in recruiting the, the very best of the best. Uh, and and yes is a one of the many cogs in the wheel at Georgia, and Kirby among head coaches. Right now, I'd say in the head coach recruiting rankings, if there were such things, which there really aren't. Uh, but if you had to rank head coaches as recruiters, Kirby might actually be ahead of Nick right now. Um, in the in the head coaching recruiting uh, side of things, but there, I mean. It's one, two, one way or the other, <laughs> but yeah. they're both way up there. Um, and, and frankly, in the head coach side of things, Mario's not far behind them as a head coach because there are certain parameters, there are certain restrictions that head coaches can't do on the road. You know, yet like recruiting really is largely done by the staffs, and there are some some head coaches out there, particularly some older head coaches out there, who are just hanging on for dear life at this point in their careers where they are not either good or really all that relevant in the recruiting part of the job. They kind of are the deal closers who the assistants do all the, you know, selling. And then it, you know, then it's, then it's, you know, sign off on the deal. And suddenly you're talking to the, uh, the, the manager of the car dealership, the salesperson did, you know, 99% of the work. And then you're shaking hands with, you know, somebody on the back end. There are coaches who run that way. There are coaches who are still very much involved in every facet of the operation Kirby and Nick being two of them, Mario being one of them, uh, and I would think that yes, a lot of the younger head coaches take that reg- you know realm and regard because that's what they came from as assistants. You know, they were the guys doing the legwork, so they obviously understand and uh, respect and appreciate that facet of things. But it's to me that like that's a critically important part of it. But to your to your point, Landing has been a one of the many critically important pieces in the puzzle at Georgia, uh, including, again, being involved with some of their very top players. All of them? No. 
Again, it's impossible to be involved with all of them unless you're the head coach. So in his role, he has been very, very, very important. He's been a top recruiter each last couple of years uh, and has been involved in the recruiting operation in one way or another at every stop he's been, uh, including obviously one of them was literally a recruiting role specifically uh, at Arizona State. But I've actually, you know, I've, I've looked it through a, a good number of these, you know, school bios that everybody, you know, every, every school in America has got for every one of their coaches. Lanning's lists, probably more than I've seen, certainly more than I've seen on average for sure, makes a point of listing not only like was a recruiter for or did these things in the recruiting realm, you know, at every stop. So he was. And coaches usually have a say in what gets included in their bios in that regard. He was obviously pretty conscious of the roles that he had, of uh, emphasizing certain aspects. I mean, let's put it this way. I've never seen, uh, you know, when he was involved in the recruitment of the junior colleges in Kansas and Mississippi and whatever, I'm like, that role was from like seven or eight years prior. You don't see a lot of coaches out there even early in their careers where it's still on their bio seven or eight years later that they were involved in like very specific geographic region like that's a pretty important that that, that's that's to me that speaks to that he's conscious of it uh that he wants that aspect of the job to be part of what is is the criterium and and kind of what is used for uh, if you had to quote unquote sell somebody on, well, why Dan Lanning? Well, this would be one of those things. Uh, his recruiting prowess, acumen, experience, and geography of where he's been involved in recruiting. Uh, yes, I mentioned the junior college bit of one and one role specifically, but at Georgia, obviously, wasn't necessarily dealing as much with the junior colleges. You just kind of recruit Georgia and Florida heavily and you start from there and go out. Um, well, yeah, important, really important. So, a, a, one of the many actors in the entire process. But when you have recruiting classes at the ranks that you mentioned, yeah, um, again, e- easier, easier, comparatively speaking, to have success than transition onto the field when you have those caliber of players. Having said that, foregone conclusion and absolute lock, well, no, there's probably a certain floor, but there are also those instances where you talk about underachieving, when you talk about that's how coaches end up getting canned is when you have, when you're able to recruit, but if you're not able to actually develop them, if you're not able to uh, get the success that should, to your point, fall in line with, if you got that kind of talent, well, where's the results? If the results aren't there, then you waste the potential. That, that gets tagged with you worse than anything. So they've had it. They've had it. And that's why even heading into this season in Georgia and in the SEC and in that part of the country, really nationally for that matter, so much was being put on Georgia this year and still is that this had to be their year, that this was the year that look at all the got, look at all the firepower that Alabama lost. Look, the fact that Florida, which won the division the year before, lost all their firepower offensively, uh, you know, with, with Trask and tight ends and receiver that, that you know, basically – that their top competition from the year before in the SEC was going to take, comparatively speaking, a step back because of the talent they lost, that Georgia was returning so much of it, particularly on the defensive side, and that this had to be their year. And they haven't won a national championship since 1980. Just ask anybody down there. 
<laughs> and that this the, the the pressure that's going on down there, and frankly, I'm sure it's going to be ratcheted up the next two and a half weeks going into the Orange Bowl against Michigan because especially after losing to, to Alabama in the SEC championship game. You now they, that, that is a fan base. That is a constituency that isn't just yearning for and dying for a national championship. They feel like this, if it's, if it's going to happen, that this had to be the year that they were going to break through and finally get it. And obviously they've been there. They've been so close to it before they were in the overtime loss to Alabama in the national championship game. They were, Frankly, within if they don't complete a pass in the 2012 SEC championship game against Alabama, if they don't complete the pass, if he drops the pass, they probably score in the next play rather than the time running out. And Georgia plays Notre Dame for the national championship, and they would have crushed Notre Dame in that game, just as Alabama did. So they've had they've been in the doorstep twice in one capacity or another in the last decade, haven't gotten there. They feel like this is their year. We'll see what Lanning and Smart and those guys and Lanning and a now he's not the the play caller for playoffs, uh, so we'll see what the rest of that staff does. But yeah, he's obviously helped achieve on the recruiting side, and he's helped achieve on the results side. But it is easier to do that when you have the talent. USA Today, I could have sworn I read in the USA Today article that he was not going to coach in the national championship game. I was like, wait, what? You can do that? No, he no, is no, going no, to no, for no. sure, right? He's, he's staying with them throughout the playoff. Whether the playoff is one game or the playoff is two games, he's staying with them for the playoffs. That's what I figured, but it was weird when I he's read not, that. He's not. You, can't, yeah, no, no, you no. can't let your defensive coordinator bail on you like that. No, he's and not will say, serving okay. as the play-calling coordinator, as, as Kirby outlined, that that role is now Glenn Schumann and Will Muschamp are, the, are co-DCs. And if I had to guess, quite honestly, Maybe that's I what I read Muschamp then. may be it. But, okay, but so that, so he's not no, going to call. He's the sta- game. No, he's yeah, not going to be so. calling the game. No. Okay. Okay. So okay. No, but he's staying on the staff. Yeah. That was a Kirby thing. That was a Kirby. But all, but to the point because those who hear that and then they go, oh, what what happened? <laughs> Kirby did that. Kirby did the exact same thing. That's how Dan Lanning got the job in the first place. His role because Mel Tucker left, and Mel Tucker stayed on for the bowl game when he left right. originally to go to Colorado, right. but Lanning took over as the play-calling D.C., even though Tucker was still on the staff. This is how Kirby has handled this situation before. This is not unprecedented. This is not, oh, you're leaving, so we want you to stay, but just don't do that. No, this is how this approach is done. And frankly, it's partially, I think, because Kirby understands and recognizes having gone through it himself in the same capacity when he got the Georgia job while he was at Alabama that, you can only split your time so many ways, particularly now with the early recruiting period and trying to assemble a staff that there's only so many hours and that you have to do your job in your new job and respect that and being able to assemble a staff, but then also trying to game plan and formulate and come up with a script and those things that there's just finite hours. That's all. So, yeah, doing the job at Georgia, completing it and staying on the staff and staying with your players and being the consistency in the room, critically important, but that particular role and responsibility falling on someone else's desk for their playoff run, whether it's one game or two games. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. All right, so can Lanning save this class? That's all fans really care about, James. On the recruiting Saving the class. Now, that, now with, uh, with the signing day tomorrow. You got 70 well, commits and then a bunch of players saying that they might not sign tomorrow, right? 
frankly, I think that in the age of the one-time transfer, God, it's going to be crazy. I think it's actually better that players with any degree of uncertainty don't sign Wednesday and really the signing period. I know we all talk about signing day and then it becomes like the faster you sign, it's like a race. It's a race to who can hit the, uh, the, the PDF email, you know, fastest, um, you know, and, and send off their national letter of intent. But now that the one-time transfer is there with the portal era, I think it's better if there's any uncertainty for any player, anywhere, not just in this situation, any situation. I don't care if we're talking about Mario Miami. I don't care if we're talking about Oklahoma. I don't care if we're talking about USC. Any program. I don't care if we're talking about a place with consistency, Alabama and Georgia. Anyone who has any shred of inconsistency or uncertainty, specifically from recruiting side, I think it is better if they wait until February. One, it's better for landing if there's in that way because you have only so many initial counters. And this year, yes, the initial counter can go up if up to seven players go on the portal. You could expand the class to 32 rather than 25. Yes, that helps. But you only have so many initial counters. So if you had all 12 of the remaining commits signed, if they, even if they all did in the early period, which I think would satisfy the fans the most, but be that as it may, 12 plus, everybody else comes back. Right, well, okay. But if they did that, only to then turn around over the next month and a half and then say, oh, well, on second thought, you don't want the on second thought part of it is the point. You want the commitment and the signing part of it to be shored up and solidified and certain. You don't want in this era, in this age, for that to be an uncertain proposition. So in terms of what happens tomorrow and the following up to a couple of days with the early signing period, to me is even a slight degree less relevant because you can't even compare this to like when Mario got the job for, you know, four years ago, five years ago, because that was earlier in the month of December. And yes, they had the Vegas bowl to prepare for, and that was happening in the middle and the assistants were bopping in and out of Vegas to go on the recruiting trail in and around practice and, you know, get in in the wee hours. And that was wild and crazy. Yeah, but the one-time transfer didn't exist then. And the portal was not even in existence yet at that point. These two things have totally changed even the wildness that is the early signing period, which I think is going to go away. And it may be going away as soon as next year. And that would frankly be a good thing for a lot of reasons. Uh, I, I didn't think having an early signing period was a bad thing in the first place, but there were unintended consequences that were discussed at the time when it was being bantied about and the impact on the hiring and firing cycle. And at that time, there wasn't necessarily so much of the discussion about the the portal or certainly not the one-time transfer to the same level as has, has been since. When you factor in these things, and now you just had a coach and Brian Kelly leave potentially a team who could have gotten in the playoff. You know, they were one, they were one loss away from some, from somebody probably, they probably get in. Quite honestly, if Georgia beats Alabama, they might, they, no name's probably in. You know, and you have a t- so between the coaching side of things and the impact on the recruiting side of things, I think that the 
early signing period may very well go away. Clearly, it's being discussed, as, as was laid out uh, last week by some of the conference commissioners. It's something that's on the table. I think it would bring a level of relative calmness to the process to just go back to the one period in February. That's the way it is. And then, frankly, I think it may actually calm the coaching change part of things with an expanded playoff that's coming. And then the first playoff games may hap- may be happening in you know mid-December, potentially on campus. Well, you're not going to be having hirings and firings when the top 12 teams are in the playoffs. So you might actually get a coaching cycle, heaven forbid. The coaching carousel might actually happen in early January, which is when most of the assistants are hired and fired and land jobs anyway. So that might actually be part of it. And then the recruiting happens in February. Oh, what a novel concept. Everybody can have things at a little bit more of a leisurely pace. But can Lanning save this class now that gets to this point of the, the urgency of now? What defines saving it? They've got 12 commits still lined up. They still have a top 25 class. No, no longer in the top 10. But could it get there? either between players who either may or may not sign now or may wait to sign potentially until February to hear from him, his staff, etc. Possible. But let's define what saving is. To me at this point, saving this class will be as long as they stay in the top 25. Losing the class would be falling out of that. Falling off even more. That would be losing. Saving is still staying in the top 25. I realize that with top 10 classes and record classes for three you know, years running, you're going, oh my God, what a step back. Having a top 25 class mixed in there, plus with whatever may be added in the portal, may not be a catastrophic development necessarily. But falling beneath that, that becomes harder to try and replenish and replace in the years ahead. So as long as there's a certain base, I think they can still operate and still function at a high level given the talent that's still returning. Because they still have three quarters of the roster in line to return for next season where they're in you know in the freshman sophomore designation on eligibility. So that's still the core of the team. That that's not changing unless there's mass exodus, which I based on the player reaction to landings higher, I, I don't think you're gonna be seeing that. But again, we'll see what the staff looks like in those things. But to me, how would you define saving the class? Because to me, saving it is staying within the top 25 right now. But how would you define it if we're, if we're posing the question? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, when things like this happen, it's it's just so hard to to really know what all the different kids are thinking, right? Because they all, they all commit for different reasons. And we also, also don't know what... Lanning is going to bring with him in terms of players who maybe Georgia was in on that he can maybe flip, what have you. And the transfer portal to me is just going to be crazy. Like for years, I covered Altman in Oregon and how he would use transfers, right, to replace more than any more than any coach in men's college basketball. Yeah, and and you covered it a lot of that as well. And he was just amazing at it. Like I, I, I jokingly said, he's by far the best free agent GM in any sport because of how well he's done that. And so now with college football, with no, you don't have to sit out one year. Who knows what Lanning could pull out of, out of his hat? Like, I mean, I can already see right now, there could be some guys at Georgia who maybe their trajectory doesn't 
land them a starting job at any point because of just how much talent they have. And he can tap a couple kids on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, maybe things aren't going to work out for you here. Come on over to Oregon. I would be shocked if he didn't bring a few guys with him. Maybe I'm overblowing it. I don't know. It just seems to make sense to me. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, as long as you can get a reasonably good group of commits, young talent coming in, it doesn't have to be top 10, doesn't have to be top 20, like you said, top 25, 22, 23, what have you, that's fine because there's going to be so much activity in that transfer portal that I would imagine that he and his staff are going to be able to come out pretty well in that area. Not, no one's saying it's going to be 10 starters or anything like that. It may only be two starters maybe and a couple good reserve guys or what have you, but they're going to do well enough in that area, I think, to make up for whatever wherever their class ranking ends up comparatively to where it was before Mario left. Yeah, and the it's been discussed particularly this week as some top quarterbacks, starting quarterbacks, mm-hmm. have gone in across the country. And there was oh, this <laughs> notion among many, you know, uh, yeah. Calzada at uh, Texas A&M and you know, three SEC West starting quarterbacks have gone in. You mentioned Nick Calzada, Max Johnson uh, at LSU. Well, that's the point is that so much has been made of what's happened in the last week with that. Uh, and look, this is this is the thing where when you when you finally remove certain constraints that many have argued should never have been there in the first place, you're removing it for everybody. And this is what this, again, there are people who can foresee some of these things happening when the early signing period happened and was being discussed and debated, there were people who foresaw me, along with many other reporters and some conference commissioners who were involved in the process, because I remember having the exact conversation at the time with Greg Sankey in the SEC and saying, is there a recognition that this is going to have an impact on the coaching, hiring, and firing cycle and things? that Because if you put a signing period in the middle of December when some of these searches are currently going on, well, then now that you, you, you've thrown a wrench in that timeline. And I remember exactly, he said, people are conscious of that there will be unintended consequences and that you know these, these things don't happen in a vacuum. When you're talking about in the portal, and this was being discussed, credit to Saban and some others, but Saban was at the forefront of it. One saying, is this what we want the sport to be with free agency? Which, okay, <laughs> okay. But he also said in the second part of the sentence was be aware, basically, that, you know, when you do this for for one, you're doing it for all. And, you know, we may be in line to stand to benefit just as much as anybody else. Yeah, we may lose some guys who are going to go transfer somewhere else where at the time he was putting up, you know, a degree of fight based on the intra-conference thing. This happened with Georgia and Kirby when they lost Maurice Smith. And that was a thing. And this was what I was going to get to with some of this with the transfers when you mentioned like the possibility of a player or two from Georgia following Lanning that Kirby doesn't have a leg to stand on by way of getting holier than thou about it because he did it to Nick with Maurice Smith and uh, all is fair in love and war with, with once once the shoes on that foot. So once once you change desks and, and change locations, Kirby himself is as ruthless as the next guy. So. We'll right. see what landing does in that regard is next. But point is when the portal came in and these transfers came in, Nick was one of the first to point out, hey, um, yeah, we may lose a couple guys, but also think of it in the context of 
what if you're one of those top players and there's either a coaching change or maybe you just have a year left in your career and, and, and the rest of the roster isn't there to stay around you, but now you want to try and win a national championship and you want to come to Alabama. And now we already went from great to better. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, basically, Kirby- basically take the premise of Jordan Love would be a perfect example, just as a hypothetical, because he's the player who's no longer there. So we don't have to talk about guys who are sitting positions or speculating. All right. He's already, he's been in the NFL for a couple of years in a backup capacity, albeit, but he's there. Right. Well, in his final year, the talent around him fell off tremendously and they knew it. They knew it. A lot of the guys, you know, guys went uh, uh, and completed their eligibility and he had a coaching change. Okay. Now, if that guy in the one-time transfer, and again, I think he could have been a grad transfer anyway, but point is, if that guy now, if that player now, the proven potential first-rounder, but coaching change and coordinator change and every which thing that occurred and talent around them not there at the same degree, now says, I'll go in the portal too and go land in a better situation and join a title contender and let's make a playoff run. It's only, frankly, this is only going to be more common in the play, in the expanded playoff era, because now people could be trying to land in teams who could vie for the playoff, but that list is only eight or 10 teams at the moment. With an expanded playoff potentially to 12 teams, you could have movement where guys could be going for, hey, can we, can I get to a team who can compete for a conference championship and be in line for being one of the top two teams in any number of the top five leagues? And then what happens to the group of five and the trickle down of it? The talent concentration now, I think, is actually going to be there's going to be greater parity of it in the years to come with an expanded playoff, potentially. But when you open the door in the transfer portal, it's not just for the guys who are low on the depth chart looking to improve their playing time. People have quickly learned, oh, yeah, it could be for guys who are already in premier and starting opportunities at top programs who just say, you know what? Nah, I'm not. Maybe I'm not happy here. Maybe I don't like coach. Maybe there's a, co- a position coach, coordinator, or head coach change that I'm not really down with, and uh, I'm going to go too. It's it applies universally. <laughs> Correct. I don't. I it's, personally don't like it. Like I like it in some situations. I just it's just it's just going to be too crazy. I think, and I don't believe that most most kids are mature enough to handle the freedom. <laughs> to be honest with you, but it's, but, it's gonna but if we're gonna but if we're gonna treat the college athlete, no different than the college student, which is what the presidents have long said. Remember, they are mm-hmm. student athletes, remember? Correct. Well, if you're going to treat them that way, then don't put any restraints on them, no different. You know, put the same restraints on them as you do on everybody else, which is none in terms of their ability to move. And you say, to your point, well, they may not be uh, mature enough to handle this, that, the other. Well, you're right. They may not. But that's a personal choice. That's personal freedom. You're an adult at 18. If you make the wrong choice, you know what that's called? Life. I know, but it's just this. And by the way, in college basketball, we already have guys playing for three and four schools in their careers. So this is this is some holy threshold that we're crossing. Like this is hardly unprecedented. This is this is already happening. You know, I I I believe there's going to be a lot of issues with it. It'll be interesting to see if they can ever walk it back. But think, how about this? What about the kid who like you go to a school? You redshirt or whatever. Then as a redshirt freshman, you're a backup. And then you're backing up a guy who's two years ahead of you. And then he leaves and you're, you're ready, man. You've paid your dues. You're, and you're good enough. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden some dude comes in on the transfer portal <laughs> and the coach is put right. right ahead of you. Right. It's like, wait, what? That, that's right. the kind, like, that's another. And then you go in the portal. And then you, and then you go in the portal and you've never played and you've never played. 
All you've well, done is paid your dues, I'm and now you land in a worse situation. A right. I don't know. It's, uh, it just, it just screams, it screams, uh, ugliness to me, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, uh, this is kind of the, the other side of the sword of play, of freedom of movement for players, but it's a pro player thing. So I've never been against it. But in terms of, well, make the best decision for you, you know what? Everybody thinks they are. And many players have learned that they didn't. They didn't. Yeah. And you know what? Again, that's called life. The average college student may transfer schools. They may think it's the best decision for them. It may prove not to be. You don't hear about it because they don't have a jersey on their back. But there's far more of those cases than there are just in the college sports realm. You just don't hear about them because they're one of the tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of college kids out there in the country. But they just don't happen to play a sport on national television uh, and their jersey's not for sale. That's all. So it happens. It happens in professional cycle. You don't have to be in this context. It happens when people change jobs. Oh, I think I'm getting a better opportunity. Well, the grass isn't always greener. That's, you know. Or it might be, or it might be the great opportunity. It might be exactly what you needed. It might be exactly the circumstance. It might be the right coach. It might be the right manager. It might be the right boss. It might be the right company. You don't know. But again, that's why when we talk about like context of risk, it might be a risk to get somebody who's relatively not proven at a certain degree. But this goes on in hiring cycles for any context, whether we're talking about coaches or managers, employees, bought whatever the case is, CEOs, you know, all sorts of stuff. So yeah, for the pre for the portal side of things uh it will be very interesting to see not just in this cycle i think again for the years to come uh certainly an important factor of things but uh, not, not the only thing but for for landing his staff and everybody else in uh in college football to be uh navigating for sure uh in terms of potentially the uh the staff uh, i mentioned it before in terms of the uh kenny dillingham reports uh i've been very much trying to nail some of that down myself uh i'll just say that there's a degree of uh Radio silence uh, coming out from some folks in Tallahassee on that. And uh, that may be a process that takes a little bit longer than was initially expected. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, for one, especially, again, when once the dead period kicked in on Monday and you have signing day Wednesday and all this, I, I know fans want the answer yesterday for every hire. They want the staff done before the head coach is even hired. They want, they want to know everything. That's everybody. Miami wants that. Uh, Oregon wants that. Oklahoma wants that. Everybody wants that. You know what? Everybody wants that. Then it's not, but it's not that degree of, I don't think it's like, it, it has to be done instantaneously. And that goes for anybody. Again, the, the, the normal cycle is that a lot of jobs get sorted out during the AFCA convention in early January before the national championship game. Good. That happens every year. So there's not the degree of urgency and necessity that fans put that they impose on the process, there doesn't have to be. It doesn't mean that you're not going to end up still getting a good staff or you're not going to be able to get the right guys. They have the resources. They were already paying a pretty, pretty penny to coaches. I don't think they're going to suddenly clamp down and say, no, we're not going to pay anybody anymore. They're going to still offer and they still have great opportunities and particularly talk about the talent that these coaches get to work with inherited talent that's already on the roster. Yeah. I, I think they're in a pretty advantageous position. So I know everybody wants to hear that it's happening, you know, again, that it already happened. It hasn't yet. Uh, but again, as things stand as of Tuesday morning, 
uh, Dillingham still being reported as a, 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 if not the leading candidate for OC. And there was a report yesterday from 247 Sports about uh, Tosh Lupoy, uh, formerly of Cal and Washington, uh, among other stops, uh, but now currently the defensive line coach for the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, being a potential candidate for a position on the defense as well. He's served as a variety of roles and uh, defensive uh, assistant coach, and whether we're talking about college or the NFL, and is a premier recruiter. So if he actually joins the staff, and I, I had mentioned him in certain conversations over the last week as well, uh, as a potential candidate for any staff as well, if he's there, boy, oh boy. Um, and <laughs> you want to talk about recruiters, uh, you know you're getting that with Tosh Lupoy. Um, now, one who I, I think would be interesting, I'm not saying that on any level, that, well, you know what? It's too speculative. I don't want to, I don't want to go there, but I, I don't speculate on all kinds of things. So I don't want to create speculation. We'll, 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 we'll skip that. Um, in terms of, I, I, it text would, it to it, me no, 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 it would be, it text would be unfair. It would be unfair. It'd be unfair. It'd be wrong. It'd be wrong to do. It'd be wrong to do. <laughs> so, uh, but bottom line, uh, obviously again, and I, I recognize and, and appreciate that again, fans want the answer to have already occurred, but it's just not something that has to happen instantaneously. It isn't. It isn't. You'll still be able to go out and hire a good staff. I'm, I'm, yeah. Lastly, to uh, the the process side of this, from like, we ta- obviously we touched on a bit of the search before, but uh, and and Justin Wilcox's candidacy and involvement and whatnot, and of course the the infamous letter uh, that uh, Canzano got and uh, reported on on Sunday, and then the uh, some of the former players who reacted and and gave further context uh, Sunday evening. And uh, obviously, even in the past you know, 24 hours in that regard, and many of them, many, if not all of them, uh, who have publicly you know, stated support for Lanning, Lanning uh, making mention of former players in general um, yesterday during his opening remarks. Uh, your thoughts on that aspect of things? Not that it, obviously, not necessarily played into the hire or not, um, or ultimate decision or not, but that that was something that obviously played out uh, in the public sphere over the last uh, 48 hours or so. That was just like the kicker. That was just like Vader telling Luke he's his father at the, you know, he already had this other drama going on. He had everything going on with this coaching search and Mario leaving. And then all of a sudden there's this letter. It was just like, whoa, more drama. And then the fans are freaking out about it and the players are defending it. And it's just like this chaos that was just completely juvenile and out of control. The bottom line is there was absolutely nothing wrong with them writing the letter. There's nothing wrong with the feelings of the players behind the letter. Rob Mullins saw the letter. He read the letter. I don't believe that that was what led to him having Wilcox be a candidate because I was always told, already told long before uh, the letter or that I even learned about the letter days before Gonzano published it was that Wilcox was already a candidate from day one. So regardless of the letter, Wilcox was in the running Um and just because they wrote a letter and want and wanted certain things with the program doesn't mean they would be against Lanning. The feelings in that letter existed in 2016 when they fired that entire staff, a staff of people that everyone in that letter played for someone involved in that staff, if not multiple people. But they still rallied around Taggart. When Taggart left, there was a little bit of like, yes, yeah, see, I told you this might happen, but... 
They still supported Mario. And then, of course, Mario leaves, which, of course, falls in line with some of the concerns. And so they expressed those concerns, but that never meant they were not going to support Lanning. The only idea that the letter meant they didn't support Lanning was invented by the crazed section of the fan base that blew this thing completely out of proportion. That's why watching it all was just hilarious because it was just like a bunch of little kittens running around chasing yarn for no reason whatsoever. And that's what was happening in the the spaces. Like, I jumped into the spaces things here and there, but I was just like, oh my God, this is just the most ridiculous thing ever. And I was just, just jump right out because I thought it was ludicrous. But anyway, uh, entertaining from a theatrical standpoint, I totally understand where those players are coming from, but I absolutely believe that they are going to support landing and hope he does well. Period. Again, hey, if you, to your point, former players have a voice. If they wish to use that voice and express that, hey, we feel a certain kind of way about something in the process. Their their opinion, they, they can express their opinion no different than fans can express their opinion. Why not? I mean, they're, they're you know, they're entitled to it. They may be able to reach out with greater ease um, or may carry a different degree of weight or not uh, in the process, but they can express their thoughts just like anybody else can express their thoughts. They're, they're permitted that. They've certainly more than earned that, but they're entitled to it just as no different than anybody else. Now, you can get into the premise of their position, and that's a separate discussion. The fact that they have a position and wish to express it, again, I, I've had it. Go, go crazy. Uh, the relative merits or premise of their position is up for, is a, rel- is a uh, uh, worthy uh, discussion or debate that could be had, but the letter that was crafted and obviously again published and released and whatnot, uh, that was uh, put together and, and sent early in the process. You know, it, it gets publicized later and, and put out in the public discourse later uh, and, and comes off a little bit differently. But I, I think it came off because it came out on Sunday after the hire was made. And because uh, I don't think people read and the letter or read the article. Well, no. Like, well, but the way that, people that's, are jumping well, to conclusions, which is insane on that whole situation. I mean, uh, wait. You, you mean there's? You mean there's? There may be more to the story than the 140 or 280 characters on Twitter. <laughs> are you implying that we can't fit the entire story? I in the that's, tweet. That's what I'm implying. Wow. I know. This is. I know. <laughs> right. It's just this crazy. Is, I spent a lot of time. Ta- I, I spent a lot of time in the lab working on this, James. So it I, it didn't it, it didn't all fit in the tweet. That that is wow. That's stunning. Whew. There were people there were people criticizing Kanzano's article for not having something in it that was literally in the lead. And I like I screenshotted it, circled it, and was sent it to people. Like, what are you talking about? It's literally in the first paragraph. You're not re- so anyway. The whole thing. Was that's again. Pure that's way, comedy. But that's that's pure comedy. No way. The way things go, um, but yeah, to more to the point, the players can say what they former players can say what the current players can say what they want. They can engage in the process or not at their disposal, uh, and at the, you know whatever behooves them. Again, the premise of what they were advocating for, uh, you can discuss and debate and deliberate accordingly. Again, that's to me, it's kind of a moot point because the process is over with. But you could discuss that accordingly. And take that position accordingly. Um, and, you know, I think certain people and, and their relative feelings that were expressed in it 
Uh, and then even subsequently after its publication, I think certain people certainly uh, have, have made their feelings not just known because of what was said and written, uh, but even in the time since. Uh, I think those who have expressed support for Lanning uh, wholeheartedly and sincerely, okay. You know, maybe they didn't necessarily get, quote unquote, their guy uh, or that they were happy that Justin got an interview and that, was you know, that sufficed and okay. Uh, but, you know. It went. It still goes in a different direction. So be it. Uh, and then there are those who may say that and clearly have made their feelings uh, heard in a different way, uh, or their concerns still heard in a different way while simultaneously uh, proclaiming support. So, but again, that's that's for fans to judge, or the former players to voice, or what have you. Again, everybody's got their their opinions and perspective on the matter. But ultimately, uh, it was it was something that because of the timing. Uh, it, it, it probably came off and came across in a different manner than uh, certainly was originally intended. That's that's for sure. Uh, and for people who create... choose outrage over context, that's the thing. Right. For, you for choose a, outrage, for... I call right. it I call it nut rage. When you just invent a reason to be outraged, it's nut rage. When you choose well, that, you're going to freak out. If you just read what's being said and, and listen, like even some of the new age fans who've been fans since '07 or what have you, or 10 or whatever it is like they, they, they don't understand the, the, the uh, context as it pertains to the, the development of the Oregon football program. And could, because they're just new age fans and all they remember is from the national championship game on like, and so they don't understand the context of what was being expressed in the letter. And you just mentioned a bit ago, like some people may support landing, but still have concerns. Absolutely. I mean, you can do both. You, people supported Mario and had concerns he would leave. People were going to support Lanning and have concerns about what he's actually going to do and if he's going to bail again and you're going to get into that vicious cycle, which is what they're concerned about. But if you really listen to what they were saying and read the letter and look at what Gonzalo wrote about what they were saying and think about it rather than react with this visceral response, then there's really going to be no reason to have the nut rage at all. Like I, I think everything contextually and um, intellectually was absolutely laid out there for you and all of it very well uh you know just given to the public to consume anyway go ahead bottom line uh (laughs) there there are there are certain people who signed their name to that uh who spoke after its publication who uh expressed things in a very perfectly rational way uh and then there was achilles smith Well, again, you, you work, you work with people and, and many, uh, you work with multiple people and have long existing relationships with many of the people involved on that letter. So, and that the relationships that I don't, um, because I've not been, uh, here as long. So I, you know, I'm not going to speak to or, or, you know, get into things where, you know, there's, there's relationships involved on a different level. Uh, but bottom line, uh, you know, again, their, their thoughts are there. Obviously they're their own men. They can speak for themselves. You've heard it. You've read it. Wherever you fall on it, that's that's for you, and that's and again, and that's for them. And if and then there are also alums who don't feel the need to chime in, either Correct. in the process, or there are also alums who just say, "Get the best coach possible from anywhere. I don't care where they're from, and if they win a championship and choose to leave, well, so be it. They got a championship, and that's all I wanted." Right. Um, you know, Jeff Schwartz expressed that rather succinctly. Um, you know, people are not all wired, sim- you know, the same way. Exactly. Uh, so, and that, and by the way, this is not just an Oregon thing. This happens. Every school, right? Everywhere, all the time. So there's always some degree of, you know, you get you get a room big enough, you make the tent big enough. Not everybody underneath the tent is going to align. That's exactly. just the way it goes. Whether we're talking on any one topic, on any one matter, on any whatever the case is. So okay, so it happened to be this. 
but so be it. Uh, again, in the grand scheme, big picture, you know, play this out a degree of time. Is it going to matter? No, no, it's not going to. It's not going to matter to the the results on the field. It's not going to matter as to whether or not they win or lose a football game. It's not going to matter as to what he does in the recruiting trail or uh, uh, what he who he's able to procure in the transfer portal, who he's able to hire to his staff, or what. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, I I I ultimately believe, and I, I told Joey Harrington this. I said, you know, at the end of the day, as crazy as this was, if you really dissect the crazies and you, you pull them out, like they just fall in a different category that I don't even think you should even pay any attention to. But Lanning came out in his press conference, and what did he say? He he obviously he knew about it. He immediately reached out by saying. You know, the former players, you are, I'm your, I'm a servant to you. You are welcome. Like, and so I think there's going to be a, you know, a synergy there that he's going to embrace just like Mario did. I mean, Mario welcomed, uh, former players back with open arms. You know who didn't? You know who pissed off a lot of former players and left a lot of bad blood? Chip Kelly. That no, guy you don't say. Was wait, s- you don't dude, say. You guy, mean Mr. Personality? You mean your <laughs> guy? You mean the my, guy wait, who wait, you were going to welcome back with a wait, bottle wait, of wine? Wait. Was See, it what? Mr. Lovey Dovey? Why, why do you do this? Hot you're, you're like, darn. You're like you know, I heard stretch. he was such a lovable guy. I heard he was such a player's coach at the Philadelphia Eagles. I heard they all loved him. Here you're breaking ground for me. I didn't know that he was a little bit of a tough personality to play for or work with and not a welcoming guy. I didn't. Holy cow. What are you talking Blow about? Oh my mind. What are you talking Hot about? Damn. You're taking, you're taking this to like 18 different levels. We're talking about, you can be difficult in different ways, but to stiff arm former players the way he did was just like ridiculous. I know a couple who are like, I don't, I didn't want that guy back. I can't stand that guy for a lot of different mm. reasons. And they never even played for him. Like it was just, so the fact, I don't think Lanning is going to be a problem in that area at all. I think there's going to be a great relationship between Lanning and those players. And I think this letter kind of will help make that transition even faster. At the end of the day, I think the letter is going to end up being a good thing for all people involved. The, the craziest thing about the entire thing is that clearly some people involved with that letter wanted Wilcox either get the job or at least get interviewed. He got interviewed and he was offered the job and he turned it down. That's the funny, that's the most, that, that, that to me, again, it adds to the drama. That's why I say it was one of the greatest weeks I've ever seen in my life in Oregon sports. And I've talked to numerous people who just say flat out, he went through the interview process and it was just a lot of things about the direction of the program and some of the requirements he was going to have to, or some of the things he was going to have to do that they've told him you have to do X, Y, Z that he didn't, he didn't want to be meddled with like that. He, he wanted to be able to run the program the way he wanted to be run, to run it without being told what to do necessarily. And it just spooked him off of it, man. And he just was like, I'm not interested. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I think he's probably going to regret that. Um, at some point, we'll see where his career goes. I think you just sort of take the job, take the money, say, okay, you want me to do these five things? Fine. I'll do those five things. Go out and win. And then when you win, you're going to get more power just with what, Chip, Chip Kelly did. Chip Kelly, the more he won, then he was just, you can do whatever you want, Chip. It would have been the same thing for Wilcox. So we'll see what happens with his career. And I'm still trying to dig deeper into more detail as to why he, he didn't take the job. I mean, I know people close to him, but at the end of the day, the fact that those players got exactly what they wanted and the man that they wanted turned it down is phenomenal theater. The two things on that, lastly, and we'll wrap up here in a sec. 
uh, one, Rob was asked about um, aspects of this. It basically was, was Landon the only coach to get an offer and those things and how some of the process kind of played out and, and whatnot. And uh, again, for those who've never covered a coaching search or, or seen, um, seen the way that it's portrayed at times, um, <laughs> it's amazing how an offer is never made until it's actually uh, accepted by the only person. Um, right. But be that as it may. But, but to be clear, Rob did not actually present it exactly that way. Uh, I'll, I'll read back the, the full quote. He said, you go down parallel paths often. There's a lot of fluid conversation going back and forth. Some of these conversations, when you get to a next level of interest, might include what does the buyout look like? What do the resources look like for me to be successful? We have very, very high expectations here, and that scares some people away. You can go down a path and get into some of these conversations, but when you get down to the real, real nitty-gritty, we negotiated to do a contract with one person. So... Negotiating to do a contract and offering someone a job are two different things. Correct. So you can get into the formative stages. And like he said, we have high expectations that can scare some people away. Who that may apply to, you can read into that accordingly. But ultimately, to your other point of this is what these 14 former players were advocating for. And again, okay. They got what they wanted to a degree. Well, some of them wanted to a degree. And then ultimately, it just goes in a different direction. And some who still wanted to go even a step further. And it doesn't happen for one reason or another. Well, one, that's for them to investigate and find out uh, with with their buddy what they want to hear. And again, I'm somebody said I said last week, Justin Wilcox is a tremendous defensive coach. Tremendous. And his record at Cal was on an upper trajectory after the 2019 season. And then he's been dealt, been dealt a terrible hand the last two years. But there's also been some circumstances and decisions that do fall on his desk that haven't all been stellar. Be that as it may, when you push for a certain position and even get some, if not all, of basically what you're asking for, and it still doesn't go your way, there's a term for that, and that's called playing yourself <laughs> so they uh you know that's the way it goes but again they've got it you know, the program's got a, a head coach wait, 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 what, are you, what are you saying what are you saying um again they they advocated for a position who's there the four the 14 players who put their oh, names gotcha, to letter. Gotcha. they advocated for a position they wanted to see somebody with connections to the program interviewed at least some who wanted him outright hired, whoever the candidate was. And Joey tried to, uh, well, try. He said that there was even more than one person who fit that criterion, but I think we all know who exactly was being discussed primarily. And again, he interviewed. There were some, you know, formative talks and they reach an impasse. Okay. Well, you push for something. He wasn't necessarily on board with what you were pushing for. Well, he well there okay. There there's a <laughs> if I fix you up with someone and you're interested in that person and I fix you up with them and you go on a date and after that first date you're like, Yeah, she's just not for me. But James, you like bugging me for three weeks to hook you up with my, my homie with my girl over there. What's up? Yeah, but I went out on a date with her and it just didn't click. 
There's a difference between me. I'm not, I wasn't played. Those guys weren't played. Something happened between Josh Wilcox. Jesus, criminy. I, I, 50% of the time I say Josh because I work with Josh, who's Justin's brother. Anyway, between when Justin was born <laughs> and a Duck fan all his life and playing for the Ducks and wanting to someday coach the Ducks and that decision and that something happened in those two days or day when he talked to Mullins. And I don't think he was scared of anything. I don't believe that those other guys got played. I think there were conversations had that he was absolutely not comfortable with. And I believe a lot of people are going to think, oh, that must be on Justin. And I don't buy that. I think some of that is on Oregon as well. There are some things that some people are willing to do that others are not. And I don't think that necessarily means someone got played or someone was afraid of something or someone blah, blah, blah. I just think that there were things that went down. And I don't just don't think this. I've been told this by numerous people people that there were new, there were numerous things that were said in the interview and requirements that were put forth that turned Justin off. And so what exactly some of those are, I've been told <clears throat> in theory of what they are or what people believe them to be. I'm not going to say them because I just don't have it, you know, concrete like that. I don't think it's fair, but I don't think those guys got played. I don't think Justin was scared. I think that for Justin, it's just, didn't fit. And, the, and the, one of the things is too, is that I think some of the things he rebelled against or recoiled against fall into line with some of the things that some of the players of the past don't like about the program. I'll leave it at that. Okay. But here we are. Dan Lanning's in the house. Again, <laughs> you probably go and spend another hour plus on a different podcast discussing and debating the relative merits of some of the points that were expressed in that letter and everything else. But point is, is I'll let, I'll, you know, there's plenty of other forms for that um, and, and whatnot. So again, we'll, we'll join you next week. We'll get into a little bit of the Alamo bowl. Wait, what the what? And uh, yes, believe it or not, they're still playing a football game. They're still playing that game. And all the uh, coaches are coming back, right? Other than Mario, everybody else will be here and finishing out the year. And that includes uh, two sitting head coaches and Joe Moorhead and uh, Ken Wilson. Uh, so was that a given from Nevada, the get-go? respectively? Was that a given from was, the get-go or that new, new I was direction? told, I was told uh-huh. at different stages, I was told after the Pac-12 championship game that, and then in early last week, I'm forgetting what day, quite honestly, the days are melting together. It was Tuesday or Wednesday, I think, that everybody would have the opportunity to coach in the bowl game if they chose to do so. And I was told I was told that before Mario left, and I was told that after Mario left. And I was told that after Mario left, that everybody intended to coach in the bowl game. And I was just further con- and I reported as much on that last week. And then Rob confirmed that that much further <laughs> right. yesterday. So yes. And that includes yes Alex Mirabal, who is off to join Mario's staff in Miami. And whether additional members of the outgoing staff choose to go there or not, we'll, we'll see. But, so, but don't they – someone has to coach the team. Everyone just can't bail. Right, but that's my point is that everybody is staying. But you're, you're saying McClendon, that they had a choice. McClendon is in the room and everybody else stays. Rob, you said they had the choice. See, I, I've, right. never covered a, I've never covered a coaching transition with a bowl yeah. game coming up like ever in my life because the staff I covered originally, they never got fired. They, they lose. When Taggart yeah. left, the same staff – Pretty much stayed. And so, so my question is, 
you only have certain many coaches on the team. Mm-hmm. If eight of them decide to bail for other jobs, who coaches the bowl game? You would have the the new coaches the, coming the, in with coaches. No, 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 the, no. Do they go? Oh, they can do it. No, no, they don't do it. <laughs> No matter of can't, they don't. They don't. Um, yeah. Uh, I've only seen that happen once. And they'll... <laughs> Was they, it bad? You know. <laughs> so, what, but explain, like, 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 it's old, like, did you put, oh boy. Did you, put, did you put money on the other team? Uh, but it what, was a, uh, it was quite the interesting result, I'll say. I bet. There was a very just, active listener who proclaimed that he wasn't coaching, who was on the headset on television. Very much coaching. <laughs> but would tell but, you but that, my, no, 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 I was just actively listening. You're going, yeah, my okay. Point being, my point being, you have to have competent coaches around to coach it. Like, to me, to me, the head coach leaving and transitioning makes sense, even though I think it's criminal. I think it's ridiculous that coaches are allowed to quit on their team before the bowl game, regardless well, of what for, your well, job is. Well, 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 they, they haven't, though. The point is, is that this staff is not... No one on this well, Mario, staff is well, left. Mar- no, Mario, Mario going to a different job. Well, that's a different but, but aspect. That's my point, though. I don't think you talked about changing the calendar as well. I don't yes, think a coach. Yeah, yeah. You coach it. You start a season with the team. You finish the season with the team in the bowl game. If you take another job, great. You do. You should. Not, the idea that a co- like it's it's one of the more bizarrely accepted things in sports because everyone talks about never quitting on your team and this and that. But college mm. football coaches, hey, you can quit on your team anytime you want to and go start building another program while your team's still playing. It is egregiously disgusting. And it's allowed because we just sort of accept it and the powers that be let it happen because there's so much money in play. But it is absolutely egregious that that's allowed. Mario Cristobal, literally, literally quitting on your team, dude. The, wow. Uh, You're quitting on your team. The only place I've seen it happen where the head coach left for another head coaching job at the power five level, to be clear, like Billy Napier did it for Lafayette and then he left for Florida and he, you know, basically was cheered out the door at Lafayette. Um, But the only place I've seen it from a head coaching position at the power, well, quasi power five, I guess, but bottom line was when Frost left central Florida for Nebraska. But that was still group of five for Big Ten. But he coached in the Peach Bowl and beat Auburn in the Peach Bowl. There you uh, go. With a really a good UCF man. team. That's a but that was man, an undefeated team. And frankly, Nebraska didn't have the degree of urgency at the time because hey, the, I, they I don't care if you were six and six. So you finished the season. Bottom line, the assistants are staying on. They have the opportunity to do that. Several of them have already lined up jobs. We'll see who all ends up falling Mario in the first place. Uh, finish the job, but uh, but they are again. They are. Don't tell me to finish my tackle. And- Don't fi- tell me to finish my block and finish a play and run hard and finish a tackle. But you can't finish the damn season. It's ridiculous. Well, there you have it. Uh, Aaron has had his position. I'm not disagreeing, but uh, you know, I know I'm you're just, not. I'm just not getting as fired up here on this Tuesday morning. It's uh, always but, bugged the hell out of me. Anyway, but as be that as it may, so again. We'll see. We'll chat with you next week about the Alamo Bowl. Yay! Uh, brief, briefly, because we imagine, you know, with, with interim head coaches on both sides, with staff changes on both sides, uh, and with a game that... Uh, it matters. You want to win bowl games, man. The more bowl games you win, the better. Well, it's the best matchup on paper in Alamo Bowl history. So I'm sure we'll get into <laughs> that. that. We will... Is that what they're saying? By ranking. Oh, is it? Is it really? 
There's a reason for that, but we'll get into that next week. So make sure okay. to subscribe to the Ducks Confidential Podcast where we get your podcast. Uh, and make sure to give us a five-star uh, like, review, etc., etc., so more people can find it as well. For Aaron Francis, I'm James Creppy, and we will see you next week.